pushing up daisies I wish they were roses I feel like I'm drowning But nobody knows it I'm pushing up daisies I wish they were roses I feel like I'm dying Just want you to notice Somehow the grave has captured me Show me the man I used to be Just when I feel my breath is running out The earth moves and you find me Alive and unworthy Broken and empty But you don't care You are my rapture You are my savior When all my hope is gone I reach for you You are my rescue If I don't see the road soon, this might be my last breath. Somehow the grace captured me, show me the man I used to be. Just when I feel my breath is running out, the earth moves and you find me. brush each of his 32 teeth 76 times, 38 times back and forth, 
38 times up and down. And every weekday for 12 years, Harold would review 7.134 tax files as a senior agent for the Internal Revenue Service. Rec section 1.469-2BI. Thanks. Beyond that, Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. If one had asked Harold, he would have said that this particular Wednesday was exactly like all the Wednesdays prior. And he began it the same way he... And he began it the same way he always did. Hello? He began it the same way he always did. When others' minds would... Hello, someone there? When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day or even try to grip onto the final moments of their dreams, Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? <laughs> I love that movie. That's uh, Stranger Than Fiction. And uh, if you've been around a while, you may remember that a couple years ago, we looked at that clip at the start of uh, our time preaching through Genesis. And tonight, I kind of want to wrap up uh, Genesis, even though we're not through, uh, with the life story of Abraham and then go on to other things next week and, and next month. But I love, I love that clip because it raises such wonderful questions. Like, is there someone writing our story, speaking our story. And if there's somebody writing our story, can they write it better than us? And what would we do if there is someone that's speaking our story or writing our story, if all of a sudden that person began speaking to us? The author of your story, what if he began speaking to you, just when you thought you had everything under control. Let's pray. Father, you are the one that spoke all things into existence through your word. And you are the one that's speaking me into existence right now through your word, even as I speak these words. And Lord God, we are the people that at least say that we want to hear your word. We confess that it freaks us out sometimes. And that if you were begin speaking like uh, Howard Crick was just, Harold Crick was just spoken to, we probably would freak out, but we want to hear your word. And so Lord God, would you help us to preach? In Jesus' name. 
And now keep your eyes closed. I want you to picture a person that you love greatly. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your husband or your wife. It's best if it's your child. I picture Jonathan. Jonathan is my oldest son. For a long time, we tried to have kids, and it just wasn't working, and we prayed and prayed, and Susan cried and cried, and then Jonathan was born. Our blessing, our miracle, our gift from God. Just imagine that person. Now thank God for that person. And now imagine that God speaks to you. I mean, imagine that you're brushing your teeth or whatever, and, and he speaks to you and he says your name. And he says, I love you. Can you imagine that? And then you hear him say, I will bless you. And then you hear him say, the name of that person that you love. He says, I want you to take that person. Imagine him saying, I want you to take that person and bind them. I want you to tie them up and then I want you to lay them on an altar of wood, slit their throat and burn them. Burn them to cinders as an offering unto me. Would you do it? Now, there are demons that try to say that kind of stuff, but imagine that you take authority in the name of Jesus, you plead the blood, and you say, in the name of Jesus, I I rebuke you, and the voice comes back the same. It's God. Would you do it? You say, "But, but that's ugly. That's wrong. Yeah, but would you do it? Maybe you say, my God would never, ever, ever ask such a thing. Genesis chapter two, verse one, you can open your eyes. After these things, God tested Abraham. And God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Whoa. After these things, God tested Abraham. After what things? After a promise, 
of a blessing and a crazy, outrageous journey full of trials and trauma and struggles. And then uh, after 25 years, the miraculous birth of Isaac. Isaac, through whom all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Isaac, the promised seed, the salvation of the world, sacrifice Isaac, Abraham. Sacrifice all that we've been working for, Abraham. Your hopes, your dreams, your world, the hopes and dreams of the world. Sacrifice your sanity, your control. Sacrifice the son you love, Abraham, the one I gave you who calls you Abba, Father, Daddy. Sacrifice him. In Moriah, Moriah. Scholars think Moriah means a vision of Yahweh. (laughs) What a vision. Next verse. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood, the, the eights in Hebrew, which can also be translated tree, or timber, or even gallows. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, that's that's interesting, the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He laid it on Isaac. Isaac is definitely old enough to carry the wood and definitely old enough to say, Dad, what's going on? Most of the ancient rabbis uh, argue that uh, Isaac was probably in his 30s at this time. Imagine that. Abraham loading the timber on Isaac, his son, and telling him to climb up Mount Moriah, walk up Moriah, walk up the mountain. And he took in his hand, Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, look, the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. I mean, he's not waiting for another lamb, is he? He took the knife to slaughter his son. (laughs) That's crazy. That's just mad. And this isn't like an obscure passage in Scripture, you know what I mean? One that I pulled out of 2 Chronicles somewhere. (laughs) St. Paul wrote that Abraham is the father of all who believe and that this is the faith that is reckoned as righteousness, why Abraham is called the friend of God. 
From here on out, when God identifies himself to folks, he says, I am the God of Abraham, that guy. Is God crazy? Mad? Perhaps no modern thinker has paid as much respect to Abraham as the young uh, Danish philosopher of the last century, Soren Kierkegaard, and people thought he was mad. Kierkegaard taught that every person lives in one of three spheres or stages. Abraham on Mount Moriah is the paradigm of the third stage. Kierkegaard argued that the fundamental question for all people is, how can I be saved? How can I be completed? How can I be fully human in the image of God? And he said, uh, the question is answered differently in each of the three stages, the phases. The first sphere, the first stage, is the aesthetic uh, stage. At that stage, a person seeks salvation through pleasure. And that pleasure can be very refined. Beauty, the arts, Beethoven, philosophy, nature, culture, religion. The God of the aesthetic is beautiful and intriguing, attractive, And the aesthetic man is a connoisseur and therefore a a spectator, not a participant. He tastes other people's passions, but they're not his own. He makes brilliant observations, uh, makes brilliant criticisms. He tastes other people's passions, you see, but they're not his own. He never commits. Commitment is too risky. You lose control. Bono sings, every artist is a cannibal, every poet is a thief. They all kill their inspiration and sing about the grief. That's how they admire something and maintain control, the aesthetic. The aesthetic comes to church and remains detached. He says, what a lovely service. What intriguing thoughts. Worships music appreciation and poetry, but the aesthetic never beats his chest and cries out, God, have mercy on me, because I'm a sinner. He wants to know about God, but not be known by God. He admires God, like Judas admired God, just before he took control of Jesus. Remember how the serpent tempted Eve? with a fruit from a tree and, and eights in Hebrew. She saw the fruit of the eights was good for food and a delight to the eyes. And so she took. She took what was appetizing. Well, Moriah was not appetizing to Abraham. And nothing could be more ugly to him So Abraham must have forsaken the fruit of that tree in order to climb the mountain and offer his son. You see, he he surrendered his knowledge of beauty. And he was committed entirely to God. Well, the next stage or sphere, according to Kierkegaard, is the ethical sphere. 
The ethical man seeks salvation through his will rather than his desires. So the ethical person sacrifices his desires to his will. So for salvation comes through stuff, you know, like, like formulas and regulations and rules, laws, be they the moral law, social law, tax code at the IRS or the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder thy son. Ethical man has got his universe all figured out under control. 38 times back and forth, 38 times up and down. The ethical man has faith in himself and his ability to make life work. So he spends a lot of time justifying himself. He takes the radical demands of Jesus then, like forsake all, take up your cross and come follow me and reduces them to things like tithing, you know. Give 10% of your income and, and you'll be okay. The ethical man comes to church to sing the songs the way he recites the Pledge of Allegiance or says the Scout Oath. He listens to the sermon and asks, what can I learn from this? What principles can I take from this message and apply to my life? For the ethical man, faith is the conclusion of an intellectual argument. God is this thing to be analyzed, dissected, and applied to, you know, a business-like rotary club sort of God. Salvation comes through ethics, laws then, our knowledge of good and evil. Remember how the serpent tempted Eve. She saw the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise. So she chose to take the fruit in order to make herself wise. She took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But imagine Abraham. I mean, what God asked must have seemed entirely unreasonable and unethical. He had to surrender his knowledge of good and evil. He had to drop the tr fruit of, of that tree, even as he strapped the tree across his son's back. He believed God will fulfill his promise even as he sacrificed the promise. He believed God is good even as he, as he lifted the knife. Abraham was like out of his mind. Ecstasis is how you'd say that in Greek. Out of normal. Ecstasis. See, Abraham wasn't just sacrificing Isaac. He was sacrificing himself. His desires, his will, his pleasure, his reason, his aesthetics and ethics, his heart and mind, his knowledge of beauty and his knowledge of the good. He was sacrificing his ability to save himself <laughs> or anyone else for that matter. He was sacrificing all and yet receiving it all back by grace through faith 
if what the New Testament tells us is true. Hebrews 11 says this, says that Abraham uh, considered that God could raise Isaac from the dead and thus even then he received Isaac back. That is, even losing his life, he was receiving it back as a gift. For even as he lifted the knife to slaughter Isaac, he still believed the promise. Through Isaac, your descendants, your seed will be named. Is that crazy? I mean, isn't that madness? Stupidity? Isn't it at least irresponsibility? Well, the Bible calls it faith. And Kierkegaard says that it's the third stage, the religious stage. It's not human religion. Human religion is all about a way to not have faith in God but have faith in yourself, your appetites, desires, and wills. But true religion, will, but true, true religion is faith in God. It seems that God wants more than to be admired by aesthetically minded people. And God wants more than to be explained and understood by ethical people. Admiration is not reckoned as righteousness. Understanding is not reckoned as righteousness, but faith, like Abraham's, that is righteousness. Perfection. Abraham trusted the author of pleasure more than pleasure. He trusted the reason more than his own reason. He trusted God more than his knowledge of God. He, he, he had faith. Do you? What have you done today that you yourself did not enjoy? I mean, it was not aesthetically pleasing to you and that you did not understand. It, it wasn't rationally, ethically sensible to you, but that you did simply because God told you to do it. Perhaps he told you through scripture. Perhaps he whispered it into your heart, but you did it. Have you ever done anything like that? Or must it be explained to you? Mapped out to you? This is why it's good. Or must it be attractive to you? This is what you'll get from it. Do you ever exercise real faith? You know, I'm not really sure that you can even know Till you get to Moriah. God tests faith. Next verse. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I, here I am. Help. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Provided. (laughs) But does God provide faith? What is faith? And where do we get faith? Push it out, you know. Verse 14, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Or, can we translate it this way? On the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. What's seen? What's provided? Answer? A ram. A grown lamb caught by its horns. To the Hebrew mind, that meant caught by its strength. God's strength is love, and he is love, and he became flesh in Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world for the sins of the world. Well, that's cool. Next verse. And the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, messenger of the Lord, word of the Lord, it's this weird God-man guy that keeps showing up, you know, in Abraham's story. He's there on the mountain. And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, this is an impressive angel, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, this is a Lord angel, Lord man, Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring, your seed, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring, your seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because... You have obeyed my voice. By myself I have sworn because you've done this. I've sworn because you've done this. But he just did this, right? And God swore this, the promise and the covenant, when? Remember? It's like 30, 60 years before this. Uh, back when Abraham is still pimping his wife in Babylon. Remember that? The pagan, pagan pimp from Babylon, Abram? Because you've done this, so, I swear, because you've done this. And so for us, number one, I guess God knew what Abraham would decide long before he decided. Yet number two, Abraham still must decide. It's a test. But number three, Abraham could only decide because God provides faith. And what is faith? Scripture says faith is the hypostasis, the substance of things hoped for. Abraham hoped for the promised seed. So faith is the substance of the promised seed. That's Christ, the substance of Christ. Scripture says we're justified by faith, but read it closely in the Greek and you'll see that it's not really our faith, it's the faith of somebody else in us, the faith of Jesus. Romans 3, Galatians 2. And faith is the fruit of his spirit. Faith is a seed in me, the promised seed in me, Jesus in me. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and Jesus is the word of God, the messenger of God, messenger of the Lord. Well, okay, but 
Where is faith seen? Where is faith provided? On the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen and provided, Mount Moriah. Isn't that wild? But as we've, we've seen, God has been building faith in Abraham for decades. He's taken him on this outrageous journey full of thousands and thousands of little Moriahs where Abraham had to surrender control, surrender control of the promise, yet believe the promise in order to receive uh, the promise. And, and the promise, the blessing came somehow from the mountain. On the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. You know, if you have any faith, you've been to Moriah, or it's been to you a bit, maybe a lot. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe it was that never, you never had the child. Maybe you killed a child, your child, accidentally or perhaps even intentionally, but now you see it and you cry out to God for mercy, saying, have mercy on me, Lord God. And you see, now you must surrender your passion, your understanding, your knowledge, and believe the promise. I forgive. I raise the dead. I make all things new. And I am the one that gives you a name. Abram. See, God takes us to Moriah to show us his heart and speak his word. And when we see and when we listen, it's called faith. And we all must go to Moriah in the end. When we refuse to go and refuse to see, Moriah burns like hell. But when we surrender in faith, that's the first step into the kingdom of heaven. And we all must go to Moriah in the end. Sorry, does anyone have the time? Yeah, I got um, 6.18. Thanks. Thus, Harold's watch thrust him into the immitigable path of fate. Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. What? What? Hey! Hello? What? Why? <laughs> you see, Harold lacks faith in the author of his story. Faith that the author is good and that the story is good. But when Harold finally decides to trust the author, well, it turns out he literally loses his life and finds it full of meaning and love and is no longer alone. We lose our life and see the author of life on Mount Moriah. We lose our life and see our Father's heart on Mount Moriah. There it is provided. One night long ago when my daughter Elizabeth was two, she split her head on the fireplace real bad. And I rushed her to the emergency room at the nearby hospital. The doctors had to tie her down on this 
papoose board, they call it papoose board, where they, where they bound her and they tied her and they laid her down and people with green masks started sticking needles and things like that in the back of her head and Elizabeth just began to shake and then she began to scream. I mean, for a two-year-old, it was madness. It was ugly and it made no sense at all and to top it off, daddy drove her to this place and now he was just standing there not stopping him and she felt forsaken. I couldn't touch her, couldn't hold her in that papoose board. But I remember I was able to do this. I got my face right down in front of her panicking, frightened, terrified little face. And I just looked in her eyes and I said, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, it's okay. Trust me. And she stopped crying. I remember her eyes. Her eyes like locked on my eyes. And then it was like they were digging deep down into my soul, through my eyes, and just grabbing hold of my heart. You know, when I give my children a gift, their eyes are on the gift, the pleasure. When I give my children the law, oh, their eyes just shoot all over the place. Not to say, look at me. Yet when Elizabeth suffered in what seemed to be madness, her eyes drilled into my heart and I suffered there with her. Elizabeth stopped crying and put her faith in me, or more accurately, I put my faith in Elizabeth. I mean, I was the one that believed the situation was good, right? And I knew her, and then she knew me, and we had a communion of faith. My faith, my heart was transplanted into her at Moriah, the hospital. And what is the Father's heart? From the bosom of the Father, says John, it's Jesus. On the mountain it shall be provided, transplanted into us. Isaac's eyes must have drilled into Abraham's like Elizabeth's just drilled into mine. Abba, Daddy, why have you forsaken me? Isaac looks to Abraham, and who does Abraham look to? Well, he looks to God. And what does he see? What does he hear? What does he see? His heart. From the foundation of the world. I mean, think about it. Who went to Moriah first? Who sacrificed first? You know, we hope that God knows our sufferings, right? And we really hope that God knows Abraham's sufferings. But you see, that day, I think Abraham was just beginning to know God's sufferings. Abraham was called the friend of God. On Mount Moriah, he knew God's heart. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you're still asking yourself, why would God ever have Abraham, why would he ever make him do such a thing? Well, let me remind you, Abraham had already made God do such a thing. You have already made 
God do such a thing? And actually, he chose to do such a thing. From the foundation of time, he chose to sacrifice his heart. His name is Jesus for you. He chose to be caught by you, caught by his strength. His strength is love. So like a ram caught by his horns, God was caught on the wood by his love for you. You know, legend has it, and many in Israel still believe it, I found, when we went there a few years ago. Uh, They believe that the land of Moriah is also the land of Eden. And in Eden was the eights, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of the good is what? It's knowledge of love. Love fulfills the law. Knowledge of good and evil is knowledge of love. And God is love and God is good. So when Eve and Adam took knowledge, they took love and they took life. They took God's life, for he is love. They took life and chose death. You see, every time we sin, we take the life of love. For sin is a violation of love. To sin is to sacrifice love. And God is love. Well, a thousand years after Abraham and Isaac, a man named David met the angel of the Lord on the same mountain, Mount Moriah, and there he made a sacrifice. And there his son Solomon built the temple of sacrifice, the sanctuary on Mount Moriah. A thousand years after that, the seed of Abraham, seed of David, rode into Moriah, Jerusalem, on a donkey. He was following his father, He was 30-some years old at the time and eights, wood, timber, was loaded on his back and he climbed the mountain. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, the angel of Yahweh stopped Abraham's knife But the angel of Yahweh did not stop the knife, the judgment of God. For the angel of Yahweh is Jesus. He cried to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried to his father, why have you forsaken me? Because our sins were loaded on him and he surrendered our sins to God and so he cried, why? You see, he didn't know why. He sacrificed knowledge for faith. He is faith in the Father. He died on the tree in our place and for our good, for now he has become the fruit of the tree given to us. His cross is a tree of knowledge and life, and it bears the fruit of faith. His body broken, his blood shed, that we might be saved, might be made in God's image, the image of Jesus, on the mountain of God. There are just unspeakable wonders that we can barely even begin to explain. But you see, on the mountain of God, the heart of God is seen and provided. You see, God the Father was in Christ the Son, God the Son, reconciling the world to himself. The ram 
is the father of the lamb. You understand it wasn't only Jesus that suffered on Mount Moriah, Mount Calvary. Abraham that day, I believe he saw the heart of the father, the heart of God given to us. That God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his heart. You see, we take and God gives. He forgives that we might also give. We sin and grace abounds that grace might abound in us. We're faithless and God remains faithful that he might fill us with faith. We take Jesus, but God gives Jesus the way, the truth, and the life salvation. The kingdom of hell, the kingdom of this world, you see, they are all about taking and raping, but the kingdom of heaven is constant giving, the faithfulness of love. The kingdom of heaven touches our world and breaks the power of hell on Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Mount Calvary. In this world, it looks like pain and madness, ecstasis, because it is hypostasis, the substance of another world. So ecstasis in this world becomes ecstasy in the next world where everybody gives, everybody loves, everybody dances. But you see, in this world, the great dance touches the earth first on Mount Moriah. Jesus dies and rises in you. You die, surrender, and rise in him. On the mountain, we receive the gift of faith. On the mountain, we are saved by grace through faith. On the mountain, we are completed in God's image. On the mountain, it shall be seen, it shall be provided. On the mountain, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And earlier that morning on the mountain, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. On the mountain. A while ago, I read a little story about a pastor that was teaching a class at his church on Genesis chapter 22 and this particular story. After the group had read the passage, the pastor offered some historical background on this particular period in salvation history, including the prevalence of child sacrifice, you know, among the Canaanites. And there was a little textual criticism to make God more aesthetically appealing and ethically acceptable. The group listened for a time in awkward silence. And then the pastor asked, but what does this story mean to us? How can we apply this story to our lives? What does it mean? At that, a middle-aged man spoke up. He said, well, I'll tell you what it means for me and my family. He said it means that we're looking for another church. 
The pastor was astonished, and he said, well, what, why? Because, the man said, when I look at that God, the God of Abraham, I feel like I'm near a real God, not the sort of dignified, business-like, rotary club God we chatter about here on Sunday mornings. Abraham's God could blow a man to bits, give and then take a child, ask for everything from a person, and then want more. I want to know that God, the real God. You want to know that God? Because he's crazy. He's crazy with love for you. He's out of control. He's out of our control. He's wild. But he's good. Do you want to know that God? Then come to the mountain. Let's pray. You know, some of you feel like you're there. <laughs> this week was Mariah. Some of you are scared to get death that you may go there. That one day you'll die. <laughs> and that's true. But God takes us to Mariah that he might show us his heart and give us his life. So don't be afraid. Be filled with faith. Say this to the Lord right now. I surrender my life to you. And Lord God, I trust that you will fill my life with yourself. Your life, Jesus. Amen. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and as you're coming forward, you're surrendering your control and asking God to take control. And that's life. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the seed of Abraham... Jesus rode a donkey into the ancient land of Moriah. And he cried out to the religious leaders, destroy this temple. Uh, destroy thousands of years of work and struggle. Destroy this sanctuary. It was the sanctuary that David had built on Mount Moriah. And maybe you're thinking to yourself tonight, God, what's wrong? I mean, I worked and I worked and I worked and I built this thing. It's being destroyed. Well, maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's right. For Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that's his sanctuary. And you see, his sanctuary is not built with the affections of men. His sanctuary is not built with the will of men and women. His sanctuary is built with the faithfulness of God that has become resident in us. 
his living sanctuary. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Jesus' name, do you see, that's who you are. So have hope, have faith, have courage. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.